I want us to become brothers again like we used to be, and for us to find ourselves and bond with each other. Can we agree to that? Opinions vary. Welcome to Three Brothers Filmcast. I'm Anton, and I'm here with my brothers, Anders and Aaron. My last name is the same as my brothers. And today, for our 33rd episode, we are going to take a trip down memory lane and revisit a landmark early work in the career of George Lucas. And here we go. Like magically becoming a prince in a fairy tale, the financial success and cultural phenomenon of the original Star Wars has been both a blessing and a curse for George Lucas. Obviously, being a billionaire and the creator of a beloved movie franchise has immense benefits. At the same time, many of us can also see that Lucas has never quite escaped the shadow of the original film, with each move in his subsequent career being weighed and measured against something that attained more success than anyone had dreamed. But few today remember George Lucas before Star Wars, especially as anything other than a movie nerd trying to make his space opera. For today, we're going to set aside the story of Lucas's feature debut, THX 1138, an avant-garde dystopia both deeply alienating and profound that absolutely deserves reevaluation. We're also not going to talk about the George Lucas who is going to make a Vietnam epic, but for, for Francis Ford Coppola, called Apocalypse Now. Instead, we're going to talk about a masterpiece of American cinema that has almost fallen off the map of cinematic discourse in the 21st century. This is a movie that ranks 77th on the AFI's 100 Greatest American Movies of All Time list in 1998. This is a movie that was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay. This is also one of the most financially successful films of all time, in terms of investment, based on production costs versus box office returns. It's the movie that made George Lucas a millionaire. We're going to talk about a film that is one of the quintessential coming-of-age movies, offering sociological insight into a group of teenagers in a specific time and place like few films have, and that should be revisited as often as Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused. And like Dazed and Confused, here's a movie that boasts a killer pop soundtrack and a cast of youthful yet recognizable faces, including that of Richard Dreyfus, Ron or Ronnie Howard as he's credited, Cindy Williams, and Harrison Ford. We are going to talk about a film that is also an experiment in narration, telling four stories simultaneously in a manner that was not typical at the time. The film also tries to convey the feeling of the real passage of time over one night, having affinities not only to the works of Linklater, but also the French New Wave, in particular Agnes Varda's Clio from 5 to 7. We are going to talk about a film that is also an experiment in sound design, with the great Walter Murch working on the sound montage. This is one of the first films, after 1969's Easy Rider, to rely solely on a jukebox pop soundtrack. Actually preceding by two months Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, a director in his work that receives far more credit for this. But here, we get the added effect of the soundtrack resembling a single radio broadcast by real radio legend Wolfman Jack, in a manner that far precedes Quentin Tarantino's radio cut soundtracks for both Reservoir Dogs and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Lucas actually wrote each scene for his screenplay with a different record in mind. Today, we're going to be talking about American Graffiti, which was released widely to American cinemas just over 50 years ago on August 11th, 1973. Okay, Ramblers, let's get rambling. Grab that special one and jump into your candy-colored custom or your screaming machine, cruise downtown, and catch American Graffiti. American Graffiti? Baby, what's that? It's a movie. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Go back in time. Where were you in 62? Is that you in that beautiful car? Jeez, what a waste of machinery. Anders, Aaron, I'm going to start things off with a more specific question than a general do you like it kind of thing. So here's a film that I think is one of the great summer teen movies. This year I watched Dazed and Confused the weekend my kids' school let out, and then I watched American Graffiti this past weekend, as the feeling of the end of summer and back to school begins to creep into the darker evenings and crisper breezes. This is a film that just aches with that feeling of the end of summer vacation and the advent of changes in one's life. So here's my question to you. What do you think of American Graffiti as a teen movie and as a summer vacation movie? Does it work for you, even though it's 50 years old and depicts a world that is closer to 70 or 80 years old? So the thing about American Graffiti as a teen movie and as a summer movie, which do come really hand in hand, because when you stop being a teen, you stop having summers, right? Yeah. Like it's it's something that dies once you become an adult and your relationship to that time period always becomes different, even if 
the actual summer months are enjoyable. So the movie on the one hand has this kind of evocation of atmosphere, which doesn't really matter that it's set in the early sixties. It feels like to me, it feels like those, yeah, those kind of quiet summer nights at the end of August in Saskatoon where, yeah, you do have actually people cruising around in their cars and you have some people trying to like get alcohol, but mostly people just kind of putzing on the edge of parks or like around school grounds, but not really going into them. And mm-hmm. you have that idea of time seems to be have raced away and kind of fall all, you know, all the grains of sand have moved, fallen out of the, the glass, but it also time seems frozen it's this weird middle space, this limbo. And I think that's one of the, the huge strengths of the movie, having this kind of indistinct all in one night timeline where it doesn't yeah. really have like a ticking clock. It doesn't remind you of what the time is aside from the radio broadcast and the fact that at one point, you know, Wolfman Jack goes off the air. But and, you know, there's the whole thing of like in the morning, we got to catch the plane in the morning. We yeah. got to catch the plane. But it's not like, oh, four hours to my plane, oh, six hours to my like, you know. Yeah, it yeah. It has that stretched out sense of time. And you're right that there's something about, um, you know, later August kind of around now where, you know, your plans for summer are kind of over. But you yet you haven't yet started the the September, all the business of September. And you're sort of like you do have a more, it's almost a more reflective time in a way, because you can think back over the previous year. And it's, you know, it's very much also um, in some ways, like September's like the new year, especially if you're an academic, but you know, yeah, I've always sort of felt academics. like just as much a sense of like a year turning and beginning again around, you know, that late August, early September, as I do, you know, on sort of um, a regular calendar sense. One of the things I, the film that I think is very elegant in its uh, the way it treats end of summer and the end of childhood and, and teenagehood, right? Um, the film is not just about the end of summer. It's about the end of these young people's high school careers and the question of whether they go off to college. And so there's a way in which the, the sort of end of summer moments and that free, frozen moment kind of is echoed in the, the choices that the characters have to make and this idea of whether, you know, going to college, that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's actually a very, like, insightful, like, pairing that Lucas does in this film of, of suggesting that the end of high school is a little bit like the end of summer, even though we, we don't always think of high school in that way. It is, like, before we really begin the next step, right? So it's it's a threshold. Yeah. It's a threshold of time in terms of the seasons but it's also a threshold in terms of of life choices but it's a different i I think it's important that lucas selects you know late august is the time right before they're going to get on their plane to go out to college rather than set this after their high school graduation in you know Mm -hmm. june july when you still have like two months and then they would be talking about like, Oh, we got two months to figure things out where now this is like pushing everything up against that threshold. So, so Kurt, you know, is really getting uh, cold feet on wanting to go um, to that time. But in, in also the other interesting thing, I mean, and I brought up the comparison to days and confused, right? That's a last uh, day of school movie, right? It's about, it's the day the school lets out and then the big party then. And when everyone goes to bed, in the um, morning hours in that film, there's the sense that like things, there's things that will have to be worked out next year, but there's this nice big space of time ahead of you. And the characters like this summer, we just got to worry about getting what uh, guns and roses tickets and like things like that. And you know, the one guy like puts on his headphones and reclines back in bed. Um, Whereas this movie, it, it, you know, that part of the summer is already done. And I think you're very right. So that, that, that accentuates that um, the threshold is here now. It can't be put off for a couple of months to figure things out. And then the plane itself also makes it so that, you know, um, you actually have something that you have to get on and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. But how do you think of it as like a, just like a teen movie? Does it work as yeah. a teen movie? Does it seem real as absolutely. a teen movie? You know, I hadn't watched it in a while. I mean, I, I watched the, watched it about five years ago and and before that, I hadn't seen it in a long time. So five years ago, I was reminded of, of the technical prowess of the film and how great it is. This time, I was struck actually more by some of the, I don't know, I mean, I guess people today would say vibes or like the, the yeah. feelings of the film yeah. uh, 
calls to mind, but also it's, it's sort of maturity and, and sort of more thematic issues. It is a nostalgic film in a really sure. true sense when you mention, right. But not in a, like not in a trite. One of the things about American graffiti that it always gets wrapped up with was that in the late seventies and early eighties, there was a lot of media that was looking back at the fifties and early sixties with that strong sense as the boomers aged and they happy days. Their it's child. happy days. Yeah. Happy days because it's and literally of course, especially Ron Howard. Yeah. Right. And even uh, Cindy, uh, hard. Cindy Williams, I think was also on happy days at some point. Oh yeah. Yeah. So there's really that strong connection, but I don't think anyone. This is not happy days. No one would call this movie happy days. There's, there's, there's a. It's nostalgia in the true sense of the. You know, I think of the 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 Don Draper. Teddy told me that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a twinge in your heart, far more powerful than memory alone. This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. It goes backwards and forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. Right. And this shows. But you still have affection the, for that. Yeah, but there's a strong you, affection. I'm like, I kind of yeah. love all these characters, even if they're like screw ups and, and goofuses, you know? And it's like, even Steve, who, you know, he's not really like Richie Cunningham on Happy no, He's a bit no. more, you know, he's, Steve's kind of a jerk. Totally. You know? Totally. Um, <laughs> and and Laurie's Laura probably right to be like, you know, frustrated with him. So this the film here in terms of nostalgia is really focused on it doesn't sugarcoat it it's a it's a, it's a it's a there's a tinge of darkness to this film in a number of ways but not in a like kind of like way that you know I'm like it's kind of dark and sad but at the same time I'm like I absolutely felt that like that pang that like longing for like that moment where everything is you know just about to happen but it hasn't happened yet yeah but it's not it's also not rebel without a cause no, no. If this is a movie that's trying to be realistic in his portrayal of like teens, and it's not like, it's not like a Rebel Without a Cause is going to yeah, it's going to metadrama. Um and it's also because sorry, Ray, melodrama. And it's also Ray like tragic, right? Like it's yeah. we're, and I was struck in an interview how like Lucas was like, Yeah, we like the studio early on was like, we want, you know, like we gotta like increase, we need we need more like sex, we need some more like action. Why don't we have like them play chicken and things like this? And he's like, No, like People didn't actually play chicken the way like movies have it. And also how much of the pursuit of girls when you're young, for all the talk people do, it's like most of the time it ends up being nothing. But it's yeah. but it's that the pursuit itself is the the excitement, you know? Yeah, talk spending all night to just like try to like meet some girls and like kind of getting nowhere. I just feel like that's so accurate in so many ways. It's interesting because it's a it's a threshold film in its setting. It's a threshold film by the fact that it's about teens. It's also a threshold film because it's transitioning between what we understand of like Hollywood teen dramas of the 50s and 60s and then Mm. teen dramas of the 80s, right? Mm -hmm. And it's in that weird period where New Hollywood's not something we typically associate with teen stories at all. It takes until you get to... You know, Animal House isn't quite a teen movie, but it's a college movie. And you then you get into the 80s where Animal House sets the template for the kind of the frat comedy. And then you have yeah. the downgraded versions that are a little more PG with like John Hughes and stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's funny looking at this movie where, you know, compare it to Rebel Without a Cause, compare it to Blackboard Jungle, compare it to the Wild um, Wild One and things like that. It doesn't fit those teen t- movies of the 50s at all. There's no moral panic here. There's no moral panic, but there's also no idea of like crisis or a conventional Hollywood narrative structure. But it's also not entirely transitioned over into that pure entertainment aspect yeah. that you get later. But it's also, you know, it's it's nostalgic and in the, and that true sense, as you said, Anders, but also a little bit somber and a little bit sad about growing up. But it is also kind of a sex comedy without sex. Yep. All of Toad's 
plot. Yeah, Terry's essentially <laughs> just it's Failed just what you get later get with Revenge of the Nerds. It's like, but that amplifies it, right? Yeah. So it's a funny movie where it it it, refl- it ripples back in the it's reflecting upon the time period before and the types of movies, but offering a more honest depiction of it by you know made by the people who lived it. Because like it's Lucas drawing on a lot of his own life experience yep. and cruising yep. in Modesto and growing up there, not really having much to do, but that not really being a problem, but feeling like you're getting nowhere, even though you're driving everywhere. But it also ripples forward because it, you you get it not only bringing about a nostalgia wave in the 70s, which I always think of specifically the opening narration in Phantom of the Paradise, which is another nostalgia wave movie that comes after this, right? Brian De Palma's rock opera. Where there's the a friend ridic- of Lucas's, yeah. Yeah, but you get the um, opening narration where it's like... His band, the Juicy Fruits, single-handedly gave birth to the nostalgia wave in the 70s. Things like that. And, yeah. you know, he, it's referencing American Graffiti, spawning that. And you have the opening song of... Um, that's supposed to be like greaser stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is, again, riffing on American Graffiti. But then you ripple forward, you get Days and the Confused. But then you add, you get all these comedies where it's this idea of like well what are teens about teens are about sex they're about booze they're about a good time they're about upsetting their parents and the movies of the 80s again bring that into a a conventional plot structure Mm -hmm. they they like pragmatize you know they make it like a program that they can then programmatic yeah. yeah programmatic and they can fit things into it and this movie, again, it's a transition era out of the programmatic melodrama into the programmatic comedy. And it's at the threshold of the two, but with neither being really dialed up, even yep. though it's a very funny movie or a very dramatic movie at moments. Like you think of the the, the serious conversations between Laurie and Steve about their relationship. Like it gets Steve is making like enormous life decisions based off of these some realizations of how he's acting is not really how he actually feels. And, you, you know, the movie does the classic conventional thing that it became a convention. I think after that where Kurt, you know, Kurt talks about constantly, I don't want to go. I don't want to go, but he's the one who's actually much more open to the newness in life. Mm-hmm. And Steve is the one I have the plan, but he's actually scared of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think so many movies after that have taken it. It's, it's just interesting how much this movie on a, on a production level, on its pop culture impact as a George Lucas movie, as a nostalgia film, but also as the template for the teen hangout movie. It's so influential, but in all directions. And it it embodies its own themes within its nature, within like Hollywood history. It's just a fascinating movie that people, as you say in your keynote, people need to go back and watch this yes. movie and yeah. think of it as one of the great movies of the 70s. I think I'd even go even further and say that a lot of times we conflate the boomer generation into the hippie generation. Yeah. But this is a movie about the older boomers who weren't who came of age right before the hippie movement these are the joe biden they were still but they were you know but like no but it's a but it's right actually right as like the notion of the teenager is still fresh Hmm. because remember this movie is made just a few four years after the summer of love the collapse of the hippie generation the famous you know the wave that just crested you know as uh Hunter Hunter Thompson Thompson. said, you know, yeah, yeah, like the, but here we still get the first kind of generation of real teenagers. And one of the things that I'm reminded of also in this film is that they're still kids. Yeah. They're still kids. They're still immature. And the idea of this teenager is this creation of Hollywood and consumer culture and things like that and rock and roll is coming into being, but it hasn't like fixed yet entirely. And so there's a freshness and a like honesty in the movie that it comes through to me. And that's partly why it's it's okay with being like kind of like sad a little bit, yeah. At the same time, I don't know. I'm it. it there when I watched this movie again, I was like struck by like how amazing it is in a lot of ways on thematics. So I I think what's really interesting is how fresh and real this movie feels, and it's interesting because this is a movie that like we've talked about how it it lays the template for so many. Um, sort of conventions of like teen different kind of teen movies afterwards but i think some of its freshness comes from the fact that it's like um you know um as aaron sort of said right like this liminality within the film but also the fact that it's a movie that's like serious but also light that's that's like 
characters making big decisions, but it's also not, you know, except for, you know, a car crash. Um, it's not like life or death. Like the stakes with for the characters seem real. Nothing seems amplified and exaggerated. And I think an interesting uh, comparison point would be, right, so Francis Ford Coppola came on to be the producer of this. Francis Ford Coppola in the 80s made, you know, an adaptation of uh, The Outsiders and did his own teen movie about greasers. That movie is... is, Pegasus got married to. Yeah. The Outsiders is a really good movie with an amazing cast as well. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's operatic. It's a melodrama, well, yeah. Because the yeah. hint, because the hint it's, in novel, and it's going back, right, yeah. and it's going back. You're right to the, uh, to the melodrama of the, of the '50s. In that in movie, everything too. seems like you know the rumble is like an epic battle. Here, I'm struck by how like muted but raw and realistic like the final race is. Like it, it passes in like ten seconds, and then it's over, and then we get this like handheld camera work moving around the characters in this great like moment where it's sort of things start to get tied up and the whole movie just it it seems realistic partly because it finds the balance between um the seriousness and lightness and the the sort of appropriate stakes of like Mm -hmm. a regular person's life so watching the movie now as a 40 year old man you know the the movie is very different from how i kind of when i first saw it and when i first like got into its mythology as a George Lucas fan. Yeah. As, a, um, as someone what, originally yeah. watching it is just like, we got to see like, you know, Lucas's George previous. Lucas's previous films. The, the, yeah. And one of the interesting things is the character played by Harrison Ford. Yeah. In this film, Bob Falfa. I remember Star Wars fans made a big deal about the mysterious guy in the cool hat in the car. His initials are BF, right? Boba Fett. But the, but Bob Falfa, is kind of just regular dude. He's actually not like the big yeah. scary villain in a way. Like watching it now, I'm like, oh, he's just another. He's maybe a bit older than them, you know. But he's he's just a car dude, and he just wants just another you know, car dude trying time. to trying to you know. Race and and so as you John. say, like there's these there's stakes, but they're realistic, and and he's not actually like the big bad, you know. And we don't and get a scene where he's like throwing drinks in people's faces and no. just being like an obnoxious like ridiculous baddie so that we yeah like, and there's not like as you, you mentioned the outsiders there's no scene with like patrick swayze doing a backflip off a fence or anything. yeah or people just getting knifed and like lying dead yeah. you know bleeding out no it's no. tom cruise who does the backflip oh tom cruise. oh yeah yeah and he's like wow yeah, it's just like yes it's like yeah, really whooping. high Wait, which voice. one of the great actors in that movie <laughs> no it's such a stack cast <laughs> so, what's the oh, man so many of these some of so many of the key teen movies have such stacked casts, right? Like this, Dazed and Confused, Outsiders. Like these all have like, and they're all so many of them are like the beginnings of the people's career. So it's great mm-hmm. for yeah. that too. But sorry, and they're all looking back. Yep. All those movies, they're not set in the time periods they're made. That's true. Well, because they're about the the teenage years of the the people who made them. of the director. Mm-hmm. But even some, but and that's a that backwards looking thing is. Even nowadays, you know, how many teen movies are set in the previous, even if it's just 10 years before, I think of something like Perks of Being a Wallflower. It's like that movie set in the 90s. It's not set in the 2000s <laughs> when it was made. Or, you know, we could say Greta Gerwig's first feature, Lady Bird, set in 2001, 2002. Yeah, absolutely. Right. That fits. So that again, fits her, her, yeah. her and it's also in Northern California, Sacramento. Yeah, she's from there. Yeah. Right. So the film also like a lot of, so we've been talking a lot about the thematic aspects of it. But I think that the film gains is is a really good merging of form and content in a lot of ways. Like formally, this film, I was like struck by how good it is. Like the yeah. lighting, the sound. We can spend a lot of time talking about the sound, and I think we should. But like the lighting, I love the lighting in this movie. Like in this movie, the the nighttime shots, cars like coming out of diners, the the street lights, all that. There are moments, and like the way he frames it, even like the, what I'm almost, I'm, it's almost like, it's like reminds me of like a Wong Kar Wai movie. It's like, you know, like well, the, you can enjoy those like backdrops and like the, 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 the wash of light and color and, and all let's, that. It's, let's start this, this conversation with the fact that this film is severely underappreciated 
for its technical and like formal accomplishment and how influential and important it is. Like when I was doing some research uh, for this keynote in my review, like I knew that Lucas was like innovating and doing some stuff here, but I feel like I totally didn't realize the impact it actually had in, you know, um, so some of the things just, you know, doing them and doing them really well, like, like that sort of, you know, the natural lighting. Like I think originally in the first couple of days of shooting, Lucas was like using no extra lights and literally just trying to use like the street lights and stuff. And it like wasn't turning out because he didn't have a, a director of uh, photography at the time. He was just using two cameramen because they had two cameras working. And then he had to bring in, um, um, Haskell Wexler. Yeah. Haskell Wexler, Haskell Wexler. Yeah. So who he knew from USC to come in and help with like, so they were like, adding lights into spaces to make it look natural, but give a little bit more. So like, you know, they're, they're rigging some lights on um, the street lights. They're asking some shopkeeper, you mind to just keep your, uh, your shop lights on here so we can get a little bit of light coming out and it all still sort of looks real. Um, totally. But then the sound, there's, stuff, a, very, like, there's a deep naturalism to it, you know, the, like, like the, even the though it's not really stuff, obviously, yeah. yeah, but like the radio I, I wanna, stuff, this is, sorry, yeah, you wanna, no, that, like, do you want a yeah. photography before? But like, I'm yeah. just like the radio stuff, like Lucas did this first and we don't give him credit for that. No, the soundtrack's amazing. Amazing. In terms of the way it's integrated into the film. The only thing I could think of before is is potentially targets, Bogdanovich's targets, which uses the radio music as a key because it's telling about the rampage in between the songs. But it's not the same. And is a key intertext for a film that Anthony you already mentioned. Yeah. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Yeah. And in you know, an Easy Rider also had a, a soundtrack that was entirely, you know, um, contemporary pop music, rock music. Um, but the music in this movie is all diegetic. That is, it's meant to be yeah. coming from the radios, and it sounds like that. It's like something. And they literally re-recorded it. Washed over. Yeah. So they would go. Um, Walter Murch and Lucas would go like play the record right so like when lucas wrote this he picked he had a stack of his records from his record collection from when he was growing up and he selected a record and he would write it into the screenplay so you could see in the screenplay like this scene is about this rec like this is the soundtrack for this scene it had to change a little bit as they were editing it but you know so he conceived it as essentially i think the thing that makes it a little bit different from targets is that it's almost like a musical like he's writing scenes around the specific song in a way that in some ways reminds me of like what Wes Anderson often does, where you can tell that Wes Anderson had this particular pop song in hmm. mind when he's writing it because the, the marriage between like the actual screenplay is not like they're just, just find me a song that fits here. Like, you know, the, you know, the writer has a specific song in mind, but yeah. And then, so, you know, they're, they're recording songs out of like, let's play this record now and we'll play it out of a radio to capture that moment. And there's a scene where um, it's the same song. I forget the song, but um, Kurt's in the car with his ex-girlfriend. You can hear this song low. Um, actually it's, it's uh, Barbara Ann, uh, the beach boys and it's playing on the radio quiet. And then they kick him out of the car and then it kicks into a non-diegetic version of the song. And it's like, you know, and it sounds different. And like, it's just things like that, like he manipulate or they talk about how they um, during like the dance scene. There was also an example of a time where they um, when Steve and Laurie have to go up and dance in front of everyone. Or again, they switched away from sort of a diegetic sound to, to capture a more like lush romantic. Uh, but it's very complicated what they're trying to do with with these. It's like, like you know, records. they're like trying to make it like the way that music actually like feels for people who are very invested in pop music, where you move between the reality of like what, what it sounds like to listen to something through, you know, grainy radios and record players and, uh, you know, AM radio of the time. But then the way it sounds in your head, too. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. where it just like fills you and like and you move back and forth fluidly through that and that feels actually more real and more immediate than than anything else you could do there and it's, it's, there's a, like a, a um a, an impressionistic aspect to that right because it's trying to convey sort of like as you sort of said the the subject the subject the subjective appreciation of that music so sometimes you hear it kind of just as something there external to you and then sometimes it's like within you you're hearing it around you and then it all culminates in the the meeting of wolfman jack and right 
and the whole uh like the, the the play around his identity and stuff like that which is really great i can't talk for the wolf man but i can tell you one thing if the wolf man was here he'd say get your ass in gear the wolf man comes in here occasionally bringing tapes you know to check up on me and whatnot and the places he talks about that he's been, the things he's seen. And there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. I think there's also an editorial stylization here that's because it's so invisible, because it comes across as so realistic in its tempo. It's understated or like it, somebody would not quite realize what it, is doing in the way that the scenes are intercut and just how it maintains this kind of realistic pace. And the thing I keep thinking about again, and you mentioned this in the keynote, but it's how much this film um, learns the lessons from the French new wave of how to edit and how to create that kind of break. So the French new wave like breaks down the conventions of old Hollywood uses some of them and it like reinvents them in new ways that it partially was for the sake of budgetary reasons. Right. Yep. Like these movies, they didn't have much money. They were filming without permits. They were doing it slapdash and they were a bit of rebels in that way. But then it was also like an experimental thing where they wanted to just see what the form could do in like a pure theoretical sense. And the thing that often leaves me cold, which we talked about last year when, when Godard died is like, Gadar often seems to be doing things because he's like tickled by the concept, not because it actually has an effect on the viewer. It's like he has himself first in mind and then whatever effect it might have on the viewer is incidental, which is a, you know, it's a classic artist thing, but it doesn't make it necessarily like a great um, work of audience art. And American Graffiti is like a mainstream film. It is a film that has its effect. You know, it wants to have an effect on the audience in a way that it's not just like impressive as an experiment or, or some kind of evocation of something. It actually wants to be like a moving story that people see their own pasts in. And so American Graffiti is a movie that takes these kind of temporal rhythms, these this kind of low-key lighting effect, this idea of um, yeah, mimicking the the you know, the sound out of a radio, right? Or the, the sound of a car on the street or the kind of little imperfections of reality and baking those into a Hollywood story, quote unquote. But it also isn't just doing it because Lucas is like theoretically interested in something, right? Yeah. He's connecting it back to the Hollywood impulse of, of telling a story to an audience to make them feel something. Whenever I rag on um, certain new wave films and i do love certain new wave films but it's the fact that i always find the movies that learned the lessons from the new wave films better than the new wave films they're like their importance is in their legacy not so much in the actual individual films in my mind but something like american graffiti shows how influential they are and how important they are but it actually like betters them like consider the scene in band of outsiders where they have the whole jukebox dance and he like cuts the music and it's like that's cute it's fun it's a it's it's he's guitar is playing with the way that you do and it you know it's capturing that kind of like lazy spirit of like hey why is a movie just taking a minute for characters to dance it's like well because sometimes like people do that right people want to like goof for a moment and the movies are not never been allowed to indulge in that the idea of like let's just follow the character in their fancy and completely shut out every other consideration but isn't it more fun to actually like hear the song and be invested in it while also uh, indulging those like real moments it like takes it a step further <laughs> i think that well I, I think the um the new wave movie i mentioned right cleo from 5 to 7 is a good example of one that is doing is is innovating formally with its play of like trying to capture kind of real time but does mm -hmm. that for like a solid narrative purpose and in in how it is trying to reveal certain things about the characters by structuring it in that sense and that's why you know i used it as a reference point to this something i'll also say is that you know one of the uh in the interview i was watching the making of American Graffiti and with the interview with Lucas and I thought this was actually a really good comment about his own works but he's he pointed to both this movie and Star Wars and was like people forget 
because both movies were so successful and have influenced what's come after that what they were doing when they first came out was like pushing Hollywood mainstream in a different direction. So like a movie like this seems so conventional in so many ways only because it was so successful and we've, and the patterns have like conform to what was going on. Same thing with right. Like sort of in Star some Wars ways. Right. But like the same thing I'll say about this, that I'll say about Star Wars is like the imitators rarely, if ever, hit that thing that makes this one special like this movie doesn't Mm. feel like all its imitators this movie feels way more raw it feels i think the new wave comparisons my Wong car Wai comparison these things are far more evoking what this movie is doing than uh like a john hughes film or something like that right like this movie is uh focused on different things even if it's circling around the same concept that is the teenager as a 20th century sort of construction of like temporal, uh, you know, adolescent, uh, you know, longing and maturity. Um, it's, it's in terms of its, its formal techniques and things, it's, it's far different. It, you know, it you is. Take any still sh- yeah. But, but the things I'm thinking about would be more like broad things, which I think are often replicated, maybe not as well, but you're like telling a story four stories intercut and they're not really interacting that often with each other. Um, you know, at that point in time, you know, like 72, when they're making this, the studio was very uncomfortable with the idea. They were like, well, you should just tell one of them and then tell the next one and then tell the next one. Or how the way that Star Wars has its perfect, like, and this character leads you to this character, leads you to this character, leads you to this character. And that's the through line. By that point in the, in you know, the new Hollywood 70s and 77, it was not conventional for a film to have a narrative that was so um, so linear that everything led to the next thing, which led to the next thing. Um, but but I, I totally agree that, you know, both the films, it, and again, sometimes to their, de- their detractors will pick out the features which are done worse in later things. It's like the whole sort of like, you know, I would, I, what I would say, the tired argument, you know, that Jaws and, and Star Wars ruined Hollywood by bringing in the blockbuster. And you're like, well, no, if I had if I had as many more Star Wars and Jaws blockbusters, we wouldn't be having a problem. Um, shouldn't Right on that, don't you? So to your point of this movie being underrated, don't you think that the issue with us, not us in terms of us three, but us as in terms of a film culture, we should not be talking about Jaws and Star Wars. We should be talking about American Graffiti and Jaws and Star Wars inventing Hollywood as it is today. Yeah. Like, it is it is literally as important as those two films. And, and people forget in its own that, way. Like, it was the highest grossing film based on budget for years. No, it's not, even just, it's not even just box office. It's like we've talked over and over here essentially every movie about teenagers made after it is influenced by it. And when cinema for a while became all about teen movies, and you could argue now all movies are teen movies, essentially. <laughs> if, or, or, because uh, now, or preteen. Yeah. Children's but, but films. This is, but, but this is, teens are children. This goes, <laughs> but this goes back to something that I said earlier, which is that this film is a film about, teenagers who are about to leave that world yeah that when they leave modesto or the stand in town for college for the war for whatever's going to happen next the dark parts of the 60s that you know, are going to follow they won't be kids anymore and our culture is all people who are only kids who never have to leave that so and how re- can you make a teen movie in the return when 40 year olds because- essentially have the same concerns and interests yeah. that the 18 year olds in 1962 had so it's the Stranger Things 80s where the 80s becomes a playground for your like, you know, your adolescent fantasies of adults, you know? You and it, and again, like, you know, I, I like aspects about Stranger Things. It's yeah, just, yeah, totally. but like what I mean is there, there's something that's um, shallow about that nostalgia in comparison to this. And I actually well, it, wonder. It's, but it's not even a value judgment. It's just simply a statement of fact that people do not are no longer expected or even encouraged to to move on beyond things. Yeah. So you cannot have a threshold crossing 
Mm. If it anything, it happens when you're, you know, in a Judd Apatow movie when you're 35 and you already got two kids yeah. and now you're, We've, you're going, now you're having your life crisis of like prevented a, a hero's journey possibility. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting how this film as a nostalgic artifact, as a nostalgic experience for the viewers at the time. And for us, you know, for us, it's an imagined past in that it's, it's something we didn't experience, but it's, it's like, if you ever want to, f- feel like you're living in this early 60s this movie's about as close as you can get in the way that you know when i watched nashville a few years ago for the first time it's like if i ever want to experience the mid 70s like like country music that movie is as close to time travel as we're ever gonna get um (laughs) that's that's actually a great comparison movie actually to this but that's the thing is that it's people again they'll because altman is altman he never quote unquote sold out the way Lucas did. So the idea of like you can praise all day, every day, the long goodbye and Nashville and McCabe and Mrs. Miller and stuff for their bold narrative gambits and their realism and the fact that they are playing against conventions and inventing this new cinematic language with all the tools of the old. But like nobody ever talks about American graffiti in the same kind of breathless oh my goodness, this movie I could watch all day, every day. I can never get old, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and like, just what an awesome hangout movie and like, what a vibe and blah, blah, blah. It's just, I don't know. Is it, is it because also the fact that it's, can, it's the movie is, it's not corny, but like, it's not really trying to be cool. It's not even, it's not interesting. It's literally just because interesting. Because teenagers aren't cool. No, That's not. the main thing. And the characters teenagers are trying so hard to be cool. Like exactly. John, the whole film is like, begging to be considered the coolest guy in the world <laughs> yeah but like so cool is also an artifact of and that's what makes the it later great when of the later battled with carol it's because he has to confront that he's not cool it can't be cool he, because the film is from an era when cool as we conceive it now doesn't like exist and yeah, you have the beginnings of it into, with some of yeah. the greaser stuff but right but like but cool is the term of the counterculture and this is purposely trying to depict a uh, like a, a culture just before that comes it's into a proto force. cool a proto cool <laughs> but like not a medium cool like director haskell wexler would do later <laughs> i want to actually pick up on another reference um anders you mentioned but like one car why because watching this film this time around i was struck by its sadness um, or or just sort of like its depth of feeling. And again, like it's not, these aren't like, um, it's not like magnified and, and exaggerated. So it's easy it's to, like emo. to, yeah, it's, it's easy to overlook that it is. But I also don't think that the movie's like sentimental or sappy. No. And I, I find one of the realities. I, I do think what almost makes the movie or does make the movie in a sense of, and it would be a different movie. I do think that final, um, titles which tell what happened to the characters has a huge impact on how we like read the, the whole film and like this time around watching it when it just like mentions like you know like and so like you know um john's dead you know terry this little nerdy guy's somewhere in the jungle or dead you know like these things you're just like ah oh, like shit you're just like you know you like you it it captures um by doing that it also taps into that feeling of well, the first audience is watching this, you know, in 73, looking back, knowing people, that's this, you know, everyone would identify with some aspect of that story. I, I'm Steve, I'm Kurt, or I knew Terry, I knew John. And it, but like, it even works today because you're like, when you look back on that high, it's, it's that moment when you're looking back, whether nowadays it's sort of Facebook, but you're just like, oh, sh-, like, that's what happened to that person from high school or, or my friend, like who I haven't been in touch with for a couple of years and you're like oh like it just gets into all that stuff that it's so um in a sense it's so universal like it's just the changes of life and you know what Mm -hmm. happens after the fact but you're like it it just is a great like getting into that but for all the romanticism of the late later 60s it also shows like how much like you know like the references to the war and there's a sort of sense also like this film was made right at the like end of the 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 first nixon administration yep. and the, moving into the second and the this sort of cynicism that was sort of taking root there and recognizing that yeah you know we can criticize the the sort of staid 
conservatism of of the the fifties and early Kennedy administration, but at the same time, it's like they didn't know what was about to hit them. You know, yeah. like the world. Not only it's it's very important that they those young people are coming of age right at that moment. The ne- in the next year, you'd have the president assassinated, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the uh, you know. Um, <laughs> like go on and on the Vietnam war escalated all that stuff. Yeah, no. And Luke and Lucas is engaging like, you know, um, I think he's very interested, you know, it influences what he's doing with star Wars, his reading of the progression from the, the fifties, sixties to seventies. But I feel like with this film, with all his films, his, his strongest interest in all this, like he, he does have um, a political interest in these things, but it's that sense that sort of general sense of kind of like the culture that he really like, I don't, you know, I don't think Lucas would be so naive to be like, Oh, you know, like this 1960 was such an innocent time. That's not exactly what he's trying to say, but it's more of like people like these young people sort of thought their life was something and what they thought about their life. Maybe that there's a shift by the time you get to the the end of the sixties and what they think of, their life, their country, and where where things are at, right? Because mm-hmm. then you know, Star Wars is its own reaction with the perceived cynicism of of his time period. Yeah, and then THX, in his own way, his first film is also him trying to uh, distill his concerns and perceptions about his time period into a dystopia. But it's not a it's not a future. That movie is not a future forecast. It's like it's a movie about um, 1971. Listen, uh, I don't think I'm gonna be going tomorrow. Come on, what are you talking about? Well, I was thinking I could wait a year, you know, go to city for a while. You chicken thing. Oh, wait a minute. After all we went through to get accepted, we're finally getting out of this turkey town and now you want to crawl back into your cell, right? You want to end up like John? You just can't stay 17 forever. Just, You've got to get I that need, through your head. I just need some time. I had to go talk to Lori. Now take it. Take it. <laughs> we're leaving in the morning, all right? We're leaving in the morning. So uh, Lucas says that he he's like, you know, three of the characters are him. That he, you know, in his uh, freshman years of like high school, he's Terry. And then he became John because Lucas was a big a car guy, big car guy. And I always, I feel like I don't hold this as significantly as I should. When I think of Lucas's career and you're like, Oh, so pod race, pod racer, George Lucas, pod racer, like it's working! It's working! his, you know, ships, the details of the, the details yeah. of the ships. And also like he nearly died in like a car crash. And you're like, you know, just so like when he does that in a film, there's the you know when he does it in American Graffiti when there's crashes and stuff that actually has like an extra layer of meaning when he's like telling mm-hmm. that in the story but um and then he's like and then he was Kurt because he was the one who left the town and I guess he doesn't self-identify with Steve the same way which is partly why he brought um he had some help uh, from his friends the other two screenwriters uh, Gloria Katz and um, Willard Hayek to help uh, with with fleshing out that storyline. Um, but it's interesting, but I just bring that up because it's like when you watch this movie, like these sort of teen ensemble movies, I feel like we always see ourselves a bit or, or you just like or dislike certain characters. And I feel like this time around, um, for the longest time when I would watch this movie, I just felt like John, like I didn't know what to make of him in a sense, but this time around, I like really noticed how much the guy like aches for like, you know, like everything he says is about like the decline of things. He's like, oh, rock and roll has been going downhill since Buddy Holly died. This strip, you know, used to drive it and you could just drive it forever. And now it's shrinking. Like just everything's a sigh. And like, uh, and I, the character really worked for me this time around. Uh, I feel like the first time you watch it, like Terry is just so funny. Like, I really like Kurt. I really like yeah. Kurt. <laughs> well, Richard Dreyfus. It's hard not to, <laughs> to really like Dreyfus in the 70s. It's so, so good. <laughs> Yeah, he might almost be like the definitive like young man of the 70s. You just go across all of his films. Because even in Jaws, he's young. Even in Close Encounters, he's the young father. And it's I haven't seen the W. Kravitz movie yet. I need to. After yeah, I the no, book. I shouldn't. But, the, but, for great but from the film. novel, I can just assume. Oh, yeah. I could just you see know. him in it so well. 
like at the, in this time period, I could just like watch him. Like I find his performances, the young Dreyfus, like so fascinating and like so compelling. He's got such a great energy. Um, like Ron Howard's good in it. Um, and he, he, I think but he's I probably like, perfectly like the most cast. annoyed with Steve. Yeah. But well, Steve, Steve has a lot of jerk moves, right? <laughs> like, well, you know, like I, you're the one for me, but I still want to see other people when we go away. Like things like, like it just, he's someone who like, he's like the, you know, class president. He's like, Everyone in the town knows who he is. And he's kind of like generally popular. And I feel like it's someone who like everyone assumes has grand plans, but he clearly kind of doesn't and doesn't. I, I think, I think deep down, he doesn't really know what he wants in a way that Kurt exactly says that so he doesn't I, know what he wants, but the movie's about Kurt reminding himself through, you know, meeting the wizard Wolfman Jack that, Oh, this is, this is what I, what I want. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm a bit harsh on Steve. Like, I do think he's a jerk. I do think he doesn't know. But then I can actually feel, I actually feel sorry a little bit for Steve. Like, in the sense of, like, we've all known people like that. They're, they're a lot more talk than they are yeah. anything else. And he needs to learn something. Do you think that Terry is, like, Terry the Toad is more than just kind of like a nerd? Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, there's, like, he's not just, a, like, the, the... He's not just comic relief, no. Yeah. He's a very particular type of person that, you know, I think that the the social dynamics of young people push them into particular roles as well. Yeah. I, it's funny that watching it this time because I always, you know, I, when I was younger, I recognized Dreyfus and mm-hmm. Howard the most. So I kind of gravitated towards them. And, you know, if, if I'm being honest, I'm definitely in a high school sense, I'm, I'm definitely the most like Steve. Like if you were to take a 17 year old me, I had these grand plans. I was kind of full of myself and I'm, you know, I probably still am, but, <laughs> but like everybody no at the school, no, but everybody at the school knew who I was. Everybody was like, Oh, Aaron's the, he's got a plan kind of thing. And like everybody, you know, am I, was I the most popular kid? No, but it was that kind of just general sense of like, he's got his stuff together and he's, yeah. he's like, you know, you can assume Steve's like a straight A student and things yeah. like that. The right? local Saskatoon lodge would definitely love you. And, yeah. <laughs> well, no, they give the money to Kurt, though. They give the money to Kurt, but I'm pretty sure, like, I feel like <laughs> Steve is the like one who like did all the work for. Yeah, the but it's funny this time watching it and appreciating like you, Anton John, a lot more. And I think it's partially that um, Paul Lamatt's performance is like it's it's full of affectation, but it comes across as so honest, like. There's there's a weird reactiveness to his performance that is so earnest that like you you just like the guy. <laughs> That's because they're the affectations of the character and not mm. the actor. No, exactly. No, yeah. Exactly. The actor is not the actor is completely credible. But also, is it just me or does he really seem like a weird cross between Walter Koenig, who plays Chekhov? And Casey Affleck. <laughs> so I'm not recast I, it. No, like, I, no, but I was getting really weird, almost Affleck vibes with it. And I can see the Casey the way Affleck. I can see the Affleck a bit, yeah. No, but it's also just like he kind of looks like a really young Walter Koenig. Well, I was watching... There's just, um, there's just a... I've been watching Star Trek. So. Well, I was watching <laughs> To Die For, and it has a young Casey Affleck uh, in it. It's sort of like this rebellious teenager. Um, with the, right, the Nicole Kidman, Gus Van Sant movie. Um, and no, no. So I could, I could see him actually um, playing that sort of a role. I, I, I haven't watched original Trek, not just the movie. Like I'm thinking of, uh, no, he's too old in the movies. No, exactly. I'm so, just thinking of him in the so movies. Young. That's my picture. Because remember he's, check he's out very Manson. Young. Anyways, but the Casey Affleck thing, and it, it partially is because Casey Affleck is a performer with a lot of, he's a very distinct voice. They both have that kind of like, they're very masculine, but it's, it's a higher voice and it's a little bit nasally. And then it's also the twitchiness. It's the idea that there's like this energy that, and so for John, the energy has been channeled into the car and that's why he's wandering. He's wandering constantly. He needs something because he can't find anything. So I just think it's like a really compelling performance and he's a really likable character, even though he's like, he's more childish than he lets on. And that's yeah. why Carol's so fascinating too. And the Sorry, other, one point. I just think that yeah. Paul, I, I believe Paul Lamatt was like a boxer, and I mm. feel like you can see it in that sort of like the like the the, the reactions, like the, the very fast reactions to things. And then, he, of course, in the scene where he sort of goes in 
uh, to help yeah. her and is giving the little punches quick. But just the way he sort of holds himself and the, the, you sort of said like the, almost that jumpy reaction to things they, around him. Yeah, anyway. it's just too much energy and there's a rhythm to the performance, the rhythm to the lines, the rhythm to the way he holds his body. But no, the, the other... <laughs> The thing I was going to say is that, weirdly enough, looking back at a younger version of me, Carol's the character. I, I absolutely, the first time I came across this movie, she's the one that I associate myself most with because she's the one who, you know, a 12-year-old me looks at you guys having your adventures with your friends and it's like, I just want to tag along. What are you guys doing out there? Like, there's all this fun to be had right outside the door at nighttime and it's not for me. And, you know, and then you get more, she gets more than she thinks she's going to get when she does it. But it's so, again, it's so like, there's something so um, emotionally relatable to the way that the characters act and express themselves without really, they never speechify about it. It's just like, it's the way that performances work. It's the way that they're like, look at each other and how they react in situations. It's just, it's so nostalgic. (laughs) So what I'll also say on characters so um, I really like the bear TV show. I'm watching the second season. And one of the comments I have about that show is that I always, I think it's a show that is very generous to all of its characters. And I actually think this is a very rare thing nowadays where a, a film or a story or a TV show is generous to all the characters, not just some or most, but not, you know, not a few. And I feel like, um, us talking through the characters in this it was like i think this film is that way because you know carol could just be annoying but there's a lot more going on with that character as anders said you know the uh, harrison ford's hot rodder could just be this obnoxious villain but he's not and even the scene where um which was cut from the original version but lucas put back in where he's like singing um singing some uh you know he's like singing to uh to Lori. I forget like what it, the song he's singing. It's from like, you know, some musical or something, but and he's singing in that low voice, you know, he's like doing that to her. And you're like, who is this guy? Like it, it allows a moment of just sort of like, he's like, this is also just a kid too. And he's like kind of trying to impress slash like joke with her and just get like a reaction from her at that moment. And it's a film that like, and then we even meet like the, the greaser gang. And they could just be kind of like either the pharaohs. You can join the pharaohs. The pharaohs, you know. And again, even like you get a little bit more time with the pharaohs, that it's not just kept to like a pure stereotype. You know, I just feel like all the characters. Lucas, it's written in a way that like Lucas is not trying to say like this is sort of a good character, this is a bad. And the film's not the film itself. Even though when we watch the film, we will judge what the characters do as people do when we observe things as we've talked about steve the film itself is not setting everything up for judgment its own judgment about like who's the good character who's the bad character who made the right acceptable choice or not and i just feel like it's rare today and the reason i brought the bears i just find it rare today where i find um you get a large sort of ensemble cast and it's open to all of them usually there's a few that they're holding judgment on you really only get that in great Art, I think, really. Yeah. Because the show that immediately came to mind for me is Better Call Saul, where there's characters yeah. who are completely oh, yeah. incidental. And the show, like um, Howard Hamlin, there's the perfect example. That show is like so sympathetic to Howard as a character who's, you think he's like a, just a dismissive joke at the beginning of the show. And then yeah. by the end, it's like a very tragic <laughs> approach yeah. to that. And it's just this movie, every character you come across, even, you know, even Debbie who's kind of goofy and kind of a caricature, but she's also like, she's there for her own reasons and her own good time. Right. And she's after her own things. And it's just, the movie doesn't have this idea that any of them are doing it wrong because it also understands that none of them are doing it right. Mm. That's why at, you know, at the end of the, it all comes back to Kurt, who's Kurt's great realization, which is also the realization that the, we as the audience come to is you have to discover it as you go along. Like literally life is only moved, lived forward. It's, it's understood backwards. It's lived forward. And the fact that you don't know what comes next is the exciting aspect of it, not the scary part. Oh, stay cool, man. And uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'll see you, buddy. I know uh, you probably think you're 
big shot going off like this. But you're still a punk. Okay, John. <laughs> so long. So long. See ya. We'll see ya. Hi, Kurt. See you later. Hi. Have a good trip. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Goodbye, Mr. Bond. I bid you farewell. <laughs>